In one edition of the comic Peanuts, Lucy asks Charlie Brown, why are we here on earth? He replies, to make others happy. She ponders this for a moment and then asks, then why are the others here? You see, in our attempt to pursue happiness, it's easy to be self-centered in that and to view everyone else as contributing to the center of your world. But for those few individuals who are able to get outside of themselves and to think about others, as Charlie said, they often make a great impact and leave a lasting legacy. The foundation or the founder of Salvation Army, William Booth, Pastor William Booth, was at one time unable to attend the organization's international conference due to failing health, but he did send that group of people one message that would sustain them for the next year, and it was just one word. It was the word others. Others. Recently, the Major League Baseball celebrated Jackie Robinson Day, and I saw a saying that circulated from Jackie, and he said this. He said, a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. Furthermore, if we were to take this book and evaluate the themes of the Bible, and in particular the themes of the New Testament, the phrase one another would arise over 60 times, showing that others is an emphasis of even our New Testaments. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to draw our attention away from self and toward others. I want to help us to fight our tendency to be selfish and instead to think about how we might help someone else. This morning, I want to show you that this matter is really the contingency point, the hinge point of whether or not we will fulfill what is called the law of Christ in our Bibles. So grab your Bible with me and turn over to Galatians chapter 6. What I have to say is not really that important, but God's word is ultimately what's important to us this morning. And so I invite you to to actually turn there. Galatians chapter 6. And just to say a a moment about our church, it's so exciting over the past year, so many new things are happening, new people are coming, and it seems like we've always got a new event around the corner that is exciting. But with new people coming, surely there are new problems coming as well. We're not assuming that you're all coming to church uh, with everything figured out in your life. In fact, we know from the Bible that just the opposite is true. Many of you are here, even this morning, and you're struggling. You are not doing well spiritually. Some are here this morning and they're hardened by sin, and they know it. Others are rebellious, and some are just suffering. You're carrying a weight in your life that you really ought not to carry on your own. You see, as the body grows, which is exciting, also the people's needs grow. Caring for people's souls is a great and tremendous work, but it is a work indeed. And with that increased work, we need increased workers As one pastor said of a lot of churches in America, he said a lot of churches are like a Division I football game. 52,000 people in desperate need of some exercise, watching 22 people in desperate need of some rest. Leadership and spiritual care, friends, is not meant for just one or even just a few. It is meant for everyone. What I want to show you this morning is that we all carry the responsibility to care for one another's needs. In fact, in God's infinite wisdom and care for his church, He's designed it that each of us would bear the yoke of the burden of one another. And in so doing, actually fulfill the law of Christ, according to Galatians 6. So look at your Bible, Galatians chapter 6. And I want to read for us verses 1 to 5, and then we'll work back through it in detail. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, we're going to look at this passage, but just to get us a running start, let me help us understand what's happening in the book of Galatians as a whole. The Galatian churches were a group of churches composed of Christians who had been saved, but were now trying to live out their Christian life in the power of their own flesh under the law. Now, this was a big deal. Actually, look back at Galatians 1. In Galatians 1 verse 6, this fires Paul up like nothing else. In Galatians 1 6, he says, I'm astonished that you Galatians are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, what was this different gospel that the uh, redeemed Galatians were beginning to turn to? It was the gospel of works. The gospel that even though you come to Jesus broken and lowly, now you leave put together and self-sufficient. That, friends, is a false gospel, that we can do it, that we have what it takes in and of ourselves. Well, he goes on to show that not only is the law insufficient for justification, that is your salvation, but the law is also insufficient for your sanctification or your growth in Christ. Look at Galatians 2, verse 16. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So again, it's true that our salvation is not dependent on any work that we do, no merit, no deed that we bring to God, but in faith in Christ alone. But now Paul is wondering, if that's the case for your salvation, why are you going back to the law for your sanctification? Galatians 3, verse 1, here he is again, a little bit uh, zesty. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. But let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Here we go. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, you came to Christ by releasing any sort of uh, holding on to your own works and deeds, and now you're going to turn back to the law, back to your flesh for your growth in the Spirit, this should not be. And friends, this morning I want to tell you, I don't think this is just a 2,000-year-ago problem, but this is a 2,000-year-old problem, right? Many Christians today live their daily lives with no thought to the Spirit in their life, no thought to what God would have them do, just cranking it out in their own religious routine. Paul would say, stop, <laughs> don't do that. The question then is, well, then what do we do? If it's not through the law, if it's not through all the Old Testament commands and everything that God has said there, how do we live the Christian life? Go to Galatians chapter 5. He says in verse 16 of Galatians 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the answer is once we come to Christ in faith, we live the Christian life through dependence on the Spirit. 
Guys, it's not a little bit of law, a little bit of your works, and a little bit of the Spirit. It's full dependence on the Spirit of God. This is what sanctification and growth in the Christian life is all about. Now again, Paul is always writing with logic. There's an authorial flow of intent here. And the next question that he's going to jump in front of is, okay, then what do we do about sin? What happens when this body experiences sin in individuals' lives? Okay, well, good question. Uh, What are we to do? In the Old Testament, it would be simple. Just stone them. (laughs) They sin, bring out the bash bros, right? Bring out the rocks and take care of the problem. But praise be to God that he lays out a different way here in the New Testament and in the church. What I want to present to you this morning as our big idea is this. It's that all Christians have a distinct God-given responsibility of bearing one another's burdens with love, thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. All Christians have this responsibility. I want to show you that from Galatians 6, and I want to just look at the problem, the objective, the heart, and the caution. So first, let's go ahead and look at Galatians 6, and let's look at the problem again. Verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... Why is this talk necessary? Why are, why are we even discussing this? Well, simply put, the problem is sin, right? The greatest problem in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in the workplace is that little three-letter word that we're all afraid to talk about, which is sin. Sin. Well, Matt, we don't have sin in this church. This is a nice church. Great people in this church. Okay. Uh, you know, like when in life you look at something and at first it looks really, really great. Maybe it's a business idea. Oh, that looks like a great business plan. And then you start looking at the numbers and, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. Or for a mother, you walk into your child's room and at first it looks clean and then you notice the sock sticking out from under the bed and you notice the closet about to bust at the seams because everything's just thrown in. Well, I want to tell you that when you get a closer look And not just this church, but any church, when you get a closer look into people's lives, you are always going to find one thing, hate to be the bearer of bad news or the Debbie Downer, but you're going to find sin. You're going to find sin in your own life and in your friends' lives. Sin is this great problem that we all have. Aside from the Sunday, in a sense, superficial scene that can look really good, we are all dealing with stuff. We all have things that we're working through beyond the Sunday morning. And so I think the first step in being obedient to God's command here in Galatians 6 is that we just have to be brutally honest and just recognize, hey, I've got sin, you've got sin, we've all got sin. We must acknowledge that there is sin. But notice then, after we've acknowledged that, look at the specific scenario that he's talking about. He says in verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... So there's sin, but then there's a specific scenario that Paul begins to lay out for us where someone gets caught in a sin. Now, we need to understand, what does the word caught mean? You might walk into the kitchen, and you might find your four-year-old standing on the countertop, reaching above the refrigerator into the basket of treats, and in that moment you would say, aha, I caught you. You are caught Well, that could be what this is saying, but I don't think so. Instead, actually, I believe that this here in verse 1 is talking about being trapped. It's someone in the body of Christ who has become trapped in a sin. They've been caught up, so to speak. 
And this is a great word picture. If you've ever been hiking in the deep back country of the Rocky Mountains, perhaps hunting, and you're walking along and your foot steps into a bear trap and it clamps down on your leg, then you know the only way out is either for someone to help you or really for you to begin cutting at your leg. In fact, I wanted to show you this morning. I'm just kidding. I've never done that. I don't think you have either. But the point is, is that we see stories all the time of people getting their limbs caught in things, whether it be a trap or a rock, and it often is very difficult to get out. In fact, at a serious level, I want to tell you here this morning that some people are caught in a sin and they will not get out unless you help them. They will not get out unless they get help from other Christians. This is the scenario that Paul is laying out here. In 2 Timothy 2, 26, he speaks, the Apostle Paul, that is, of a similar scenario where he says, you must correct your opponents with gentleness that they may escape the snare of the devil. Same idea, right? The snare of the devil. Devil. Friends, this morning, I want to tell you that we are up against an unholy trifecta, an unholy trinity, so to speak, of the world, the devil, and the flesh that are constantly trying to ensnare us. And unfortunately, there are a myriad of traps that they set. That's why in Galatians 6.1, it says, if anyone is caught in any transgression. The ways we can get hung up are innumerable. James 3.2 says we all stumble in many ways. Many ways we stumble. Romans 1.30 speaks of mankind as inventors of evil. It's impossible to count down the innumerable kinds of traps that may be set for us. But just to list a few, you may get trapped or someone you love and care about may get trapped by fear, anxiety, and anger. You might get trapped by lust, immorality, adultery, indulgence, gluttony, lack of self-control, laziness, idleness, apathy, grumbling, Did you know that grumbling is a sin, according to Philippians 2.14? Grumbling, complaining, entitlement, or just the sin of pride. Many, many sins can trap us, but look back at the Bible in Galatians 6.1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them. In other words, the good news is that though you may get trapped, though someone you love may get trapped, No sin is off limits for God, God's Spirit, God's Word, and God's people to help restore. That is an encouraging bit of news this morning. No sin is off limits. Not only is no sin off limits, but no people are off limits either. It says, if anyone, if anyone. That means that regardless of who you are and what your sin struggle is, this body wants to help you. We want to help you grow and change to be more like Jesus. That's the problem. But in thinking about the problem, our minds are automatically drawn to, okay, if that's the problem, then what do I do now? What is my role as a Christian? What is my objective in this, if you will? Again, in verse 1, he says, speaking to the objective, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Restore him. Now, in the process of seeking to help others, there are surely going to be a multitude of problems, right? Different levels of complexity. And because of this, I think what Paul does here is he gives a specific example that's kind of an intense, pointed example. And then in verse 2, he's going to come back and give the broad 
principle overall. So first, let's look at this specific example. He says, if you're caught in a sin, you should restore him. Restore him. Now, think with me on this for a moment. There are a lot of ways that Christians can respond when they encounter someone caught in a sin. First, they could experience that and see that someone's trapped and they could just turn a blind eye and move on, forget about it and not really care. Or perhaps they want to expose the sinner. Aha, I've got you. This is my chance to bring you down and expose your weakness so that I look even more exalted, more holy. Or they could criticize them, berate them, and condemn them as the legalist would do in the context of Galatians. Or they could gently humbly seek to restore them, which is the route given here. This is the way. The word restore, then, in verse 1, is the same word that's used for the mending of nets. A net is torn, and it is mended or restored back together. Now, depending on the size of the tear, you know this, that net might not always function like it used to. It might not be like it was when it was brand new. There might be a residual scarring, if you will. But nonetheless, the net, the net is ultimately mended or restored. Well, so it is with the sinner's sin. There may be consequences, right? We're not saying here that any sin can just be put back together and then we go back to normal life. Sometimes there are sins that leave scars. Sometimes bonds of trust are broken. Sometimes it takes time to heal and sometimes a person will never quite be the same. But nonetheless, we are still called to restore them. Now this word in verse 1, restore, is also used of a doctor setting a broken bone. And if you've ever had a, a broken bone that needed to be set or you've watched a child go through that, you know that this is not for anyone, right? This is a very careful process that requires knowledge and skill. And because of that, it's no surprise, look at verse 1, that God actually qualifies within the body of Christ who should do this specific manifestation of bearing burdens. Who should do the restoring? Verse 1, first word says brothers. So wait, Matt, you mean to tell me that when I have a spiritual issue in my life and if I've been caught up, that I shouldn't run to the world for solutions? Yes, amen, hallelujah, thank you. Guys, please go nowhere but the word of God and the people of God when you get caught up in sin. It must be, according to the verse, brothers, but second of all, look at the qualification. It also says that you who are spiritual. And because he has just stated that this is addressed to brothers, I don't think he's being redundant. I think he's talking about a segment within the body of Christ. In other words, it is those who are spiritually mature who should do this restoring process. What does that look like? Well, at the end of chapter 5, he just laid out in verse 22 the fruit of the Spirit. Someone who is walking in the Spirit and crucifying the flesh. You don't have to be a pastor or a certified counselor, but you must be spiritually mature to help restore another Christian. So let's look at this again. When, when someone is caught in a sin, anyone in any sin, God calls spiritually mature Christians to restore them. He, notice he doesn't say to train them <laughs> like a coach. He doesn't say to educate them like a teacher. He doesn't say to command them like a general or to condemn them like a lawyer, but he says to restore them like a careful doctor. That is the specific scenario. But now I think, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul goes broader. He moves from that specific intense command, which is a hypothetical scenario that we will likely encounter, and now he goes very broad. 
He goes actually to now everyone and everyone's responsibility to get under the burden of others. Look at Galatians 6 verse 2. And he says, bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. Now maybe up to this point you're thinking, Matt, uh, that's great. I'm glad that it's just a select few that have to restore because I don't really want to be part of that. I just want to come here. I just want to learn and grow and sit in the chair and then leave. And maybe I'll serve once in a while. I'll set up chairs. I'll do something like that. But I don't really want to get involved with people. After all, I'm not really my brother's keeper, am I? Well, I encountered a story that I think I might share with you. Uh, a zookeeper entered the zoo one night, and to his shock, an orangutan was reading two, not one, but two books. So he's shocked, and so he says, okay, well, what are you reading? What are you reading, Mr. Orangutan? And he says, oh, thank you for asking. I'm reading Darwin's Origin of the Species, and on the other hand, I'm reading the Bible. Well, now the zookeeper's just intrigued, so he says, why are you reading these? He says, ah, thanks for asking. I'm trying to figure out, am I my brother's keeper or my keeper's brother? Think about that for a moment. Well, in any case, you may be sitting here wondering the same thing, and maybe not the latter half of that, but at least the first half. Are you your brother's keeper? And friends, what I want to show you on the authority of the Word of God is that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens. And this is addressed to everyone Now, what does this mean and what does this look like? Well, to bear with someone is to get up under their load. It is to endure some level of difficulty that they are experiencing. And the burdens here are concerns. They're heavy things, weighty matters in their life. Man, maybe you've uh, had a buddy invite you to do something hard. And at first you're like, oh, should I do this? And you decide to do it. And then in that exact moment when it turns out to actually be hard, you realize oh wait, I willingly signed up for this, so I can't even complain. Well, in the same way, God is calling us, men and women, all who are in Christ, to intentionally and on purpose bear another's burden. He's asking you to do something hard. He's asking you to, to, in a sense, get your hands dirty in the work of people's lives, to come underneath that giant stone that someone is being crushed under, and to help them lift it. Now again, consider the context of Galatians. This was a legalistic community. They operated under a law and punishment sort of system. But in this living church, this organism, it's a different ball game. To summarize then, God is calling Christians to bear up under the struggles and sins, the trials and the temptations of other Christians, and get this, and in so doing, to fulfill the law of Christ to fulfill the law of Christ. So let me just pause and ask, Christian, are you able to do this? Are you able to bear others' burdens? You might feel like you're not as spiritually mature as as others, but guess what? Even mature Christians have struggles. Everyone in the body of Christ will need a lending hand at some point or another. Do you have the selflessness, the humility, the compassion, the desire to bear their burdens with them? Furthermore, I'd ask, within your circle of influence, have we created a safe place where people are actually free to seek help, where they feel the freedom to say, hey, I'm just kind of struggling this week. I'm struggling with this issue or with this temptation or this thing has been hard. Or have we created a little microcosm of Phariseeism, maybe unintentionally, where we don't feel safe doing that? 
the Christian band Casting Crowns wrote a song called Stained Glass Masquerade. And they said, are we happy plastic people under shiny plastic steeples with walls around our weakness and smiles that hide our pain? You see, this was the issue for the Galatians, which is why Paul is clearly laying out, here's the problem and here's your objective. You must restore and broadly speaking, you must bear others' burdens. All Christians have this distinct God-given responsibility. But notice, that's not all that the Lord says here. We might ask the question, how? Does it matter how? How does the Lord want us to help other people? How must we be intrinsically motivated in this process? And this gets us to now the heart. The heart. If we are to fulfill the law of Christ, which is a big statement, by the way, fulfilling the law of Christ, what is our our demeanor or our heart in the process? And look again at verse 1. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a what? A spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. So again, you've encountered someone's sin. You've been made known to it or you've seen it. And in route to fulfilling the law of Christ, which is to bear their burdens and potentially to help restore, you could turn a blind eye, but you shouldn't. You could criticize and condemn, but you shouldn't. You could gossip and slander and expose them which is often the route taken, but you shouldn't. And we shouldn't either deal roughly or harshly. No doctor grabs a broken bone and says, give me that thing, and shoves it in harshly, right? There's a gentleness here. The text says here that we are to restore in a spirit of gentleness. Now, this word gentle, this was helpful to me as I studied this. It actually means courteous. It means considerate. It means to really consider if I were in their shoes how would I want to be restored? Harshly, condescendingly, or with gentleness? In the same way, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is saying that the Lord's servant must be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance. There should be a winsomeness to the way that we go about helping others to grow and change. So the first inner quality or uh, demeanor as we approach this process should be that of gentleness. But the second is really bound up in verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? I'll say it in a word. It's love. It's love. In fact, in Galatians 5 verse 14 Paul has already said, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Romans 13, verse 8, he said, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves one another fulfills the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. And he said, the greatest commandment is this, love your God with all all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Brent just read this morning from Ephesians 4, verse 2, bearing with one another in love. So just as bearing one another's burdens is the broad principle under which restoring falls, so too love, or fulfilling the law of Christ, is the broad principle As to how we deal with sin, which one example of that is gentleness. 
So let me point out a couple more things about this phrase, uh, fulfilling the law of Christ. First, it's not something you do alone. Guys, this is a communal command. This is a together imperative. We must do this with one another and for one another in order to fulfill the law of Christ. Don't forget, this is written to the church, communal. But second, it's interesting to note that God seems to be concerned about how we deal with sin rather than the total elimination of sin. In other words, in our lives and in our church, there's going to be sin. And God is concerned about our process and our heart more than he is with just the absolute expunging of all uncleanness. Of course, he wants us to grow, but he cares about how we do this. So again, let me remind us of our big idea here. It's this. It's that all Christians have a distinct God-given responsibility to bear one another's burdens with love, thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. Well, there's a final aspect here to this process of fulfilling the law of Christ, this process of bearing one another's burdens with love, and it is the caution. It is the caution. You see, in zeal, a lot of times Christians run into the burning building to help someone, but they forget to properly prepare. They forget to be cautious in the process. And so there's really three errors and three exhortations, I think, from this paragraph that we need to take with us, lest we risk losing the entire operation. Crucial that we get these. Look back at your Bible in verse 1. The first error is that they forget that they too are susceptible to sin. End of verse 1. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That is to say, watch yourself. So again, in, the, in their zeal to help others, in their ambition to be useful to the Lord and to love people and help them grow and change, they forget that they too are a sinner. Now just think about from the devil's perspective. Isn't that a sly trick? You've got a struggling Christian and a healthy Christian is going to come and help that struggling Christian and yet now he's going to trip up that healthy Christian in the same pit and mire as the struggling Christian. Now you've got two people in the quicksand that need help getting out instead of just one. The caution from the Holy Spirit here to us is that we must watch ourselves lest you too be tempted. Now that might be being tempted by the same sin or it could be being tempted by the sin of pride. By the sin of pride. What this verse is telling us is that, Christians, it doesn't matter how many gifts you have. It doesn't matter what your credentials are. It doesn't matter how many people you've helped. We need to be careful. We need to be watchful. In fact, I would say it this way. It's those who are serving the most and giving themselves the most who are actually potentially the most susceptible so, in this process, we need to be suspicious. As Pastor Alistair Begg says, you need to be suspicious of yourself always. There's a sense in which we should have a healthy fear of falling into sin. As 1 Corinthians 10:12 says, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Be careful of sin, be careful of the sin of pride. Burden-bearing Christian, watch yourself in this process. Error number 2, is that you must forget yourself. Forget yourself. Look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. The second error that Christians make is actually they look down on others and they look highly upon themselves. 
They can begin to develop a complex where they think that they are better than other Christians. But friends, we know that's not true, is it? That's never true, right? Unfortunately, they can begin to look down on people that are struggling, look down on people that fall into that sin. Oh, well, I just struggle with these sins, but you fell into that sin. And maybe they won't say it, but as they help people, and they've got the Bible answers, and they've got wisdom, and maybe they're good counselors or mentors, but they've developed an ego, and they're arrogant. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he's something in this process, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. God really has two words for us as this caution. You're nothing. (laughs) You're nothing, right? Even as our, our ministries unfold and we get involved in people's lives and we seek to help people grow and change, We never move on from the simple gospel truth that we are sinners saved by grace and that's nothing of ourselves. We were born in sin. We sin by birth and by nature and by practice and sin still is the black mark in our ledger. Now God forgives sin. Praise be to God for Jesus. But minister and Christian, don't forget your roots, so to speak. Don't forget that you yourselves were at one time once enslaved to various passions and pleasures. You were enslaved to darkness. And now your ministry is just that. It's a ministry. It's a service. It's an overflow to others out of the joy of your own salvation. I'll never forget, first understanding what Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20, was talking about when Jesus, after all of his disciples, I think there were 70 or 72 that had gone out, and they come back, and they're boasting about all their ministry success, And he says, oh yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And at first you wonder, what is that talking about? But then as you study it, you realize he's talking about the sin of pride. The sin of pride, particularly in the context of ministry. So what? You're able to teach. So what? You're able to lead a grace group. You're able to counsel or evangelize. Or you've got boldness. Or you've got compassion. Friends, the caution here is that we must not look down on others and we must really forget ourselves. We are not all that in a bag of chips. Amen? Amen. Third and final error is that in the midst of bearing others' burdens and seeking to minister, people can begin to compare their ministry to others. Verse 4. Let each one test his own work and then he has reason to boast in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. In an attempt to help others, and you jump in perhaps with good motives at first, it's easy in the race to begin to do this and look to your left and look to your right. And I want to just say it this way, that always, always, always when that happens, one of two things is going to result, pride or discouragement. You're either going to get prideful because you realize you're doing more than others. You're being more fruitful than others. Look how much God is blessing your efforts in ministry. Or you're going to get discouraged because now the standard of your ministry success is based on what you see God doing in other people. Please don't do this. The, the warning here, the caution here, again, from the Spirit to us today, is to be yourself. Stay in your lane. Don't compare your impact with others. Don't compare your reach with others. Don't compare your gifts or your fruit or anything, which is why he says, test your own work. In other words, it's about quality, not quantity. Don't get into the numbers game, right? He says in verse 4, if there's going to be boasting, 
Let it be in what God is doing in you and in you alone. This is always the case, right? We know that we don't boast in ourselves. Galatians has made this point through all six chapters. And furthermore, Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in what? In my weakness. In my weakness. Friends, my concern is that whenever we turn to our own flesh, whenever we look to ourselves, we risk doing the very thing that's warned against in Galatians 2.21, nullifying the grace of God. You see, when you come to God for salvation and you bring some of your own works, some of your own religion, some of your own merits and goodness, Paul says in 2.21, you nullify the grace of God. You make it void. You shrink the cross and that's actually an offense to God. Well, in the same way, how is it any different when we take credit for things that God is doing in and through us? Be careful of ministry jealousy. Be careful of ministry pride, lest we nullify God's grace to us. It's not a game. It's not a competition, right? It's simply a race that we're called to run in being faithful to God. So burden-bearing Christian, be yourself as you seek to help others. Be faithful to the Lord to carry your own load. As verse 5 says, each will have to bear his own load, really, in judgment. You will be accountable before God, not for what everyone else is doing, but for how you handled your gifts, your resources, your ministry opportunities. I want to button things up with this. I want to ask the question for you here this morning. What is holding you back? What is the thing that's keeping you from being all that God wants you to be, both as a Christian and as a minister to other Christians? And I think there's maybe three things that could snag you up, three things that could be keeping you from fulfilling your potential. First is immature, right, that you're immature. And if you're in that place where you feel like, man, I'm just not ready, I'm not ready to help others, then I would say, get ready, (laughs) right? Take your spiritual discipline seriously. Get into a study with people. Get into a grace group. Get into a mentorship. Start reading this book and let it change your life. Guys, we've only got one life to live. You only have one opportunity to be the best you can be for Christ and to be the most effective that you can be for others. So if you're immature, yeah, maybe it's not best to begin restoring others, but you can begin loving people and growing in your own walk along the way. But second, maybe you're in a place where you're unaware, right? You're not immediately aware of other needs, and if you were aware, perhaps you'd jump in with them, but right now you're not aware. Well, if that's you, then there's a very simple action item for you this morning, and that is to jump in with people, right? Get involved in other people's lives. Genuinely care about them. Back to the beginning, Lucy, hey, Charlie, what's the point of life? Well, It's about others. It's about others. So get involved with other people. And I just want to tell you that it will not take long. It will not take long if you genuinely love and care for people, for people to begin to trust you. Are you with me? To begin to actually confide in you. Why is that? Because so few people actually care about other people. If you will walk up the hill, upstream, so to speak, and actually care about others, I can guarantee that others will begin to trust and confide in you. Invest, inquire, care, and love people. Guys, we're all sinners. We've all got things going on. And so if you're unaware, it's actually just because you're probably not involved at the level that you should be. 
So if you're unaware, get involved. Third and finally, maybe you feel unequipped. Maybe this whole thing, bearing others' burdens, restoring someone in a spirit of gentleness, that seems overwhelming to you because you don't really know where to go and how to do this. And okay, that's fair. Um, Again, I would say we have one book, (laughs) just one. If you study medicine, you've got tons of books. If you study engineering, tons of books. If you study any field, you have tons of books. Guys, as Christians, we have one. And it's our duty to master the one book. We have a lifetime to do it. So again, action item number one, if you feel unequipped, get to know the book. But second of all, I'm glad that we're on this point because I'm excited to announce we have several things that are meant for your equipping. Uh, specifically in the realm of counseling and helping others to change. First, we're doing an equipping class on biblical counseling right now, Sunday mornings. It's not too late to hop in. But second of all, I want to tell you about a couple other things that are going on. Right now, we have around 50 people that have jumped into cohorts. We're calling them counseling cohorts. We're just in groups of three to five people. We are working through counseling issues. We're working through how to use the Word of God in a meaningful way to help other people change. Really, what we're doing is we're seeking to apply this very principle of bearing one another's burdens. So if you're interested and you say, hey, okay, I'm ready. I want to grow. I want to change. I want to be obedient to God's Word. We would love to have you in a cohort. Third and finally, we have, as we've been announcing, a a training weekend coming this fall here to Grace Church. We're calling it Counseling Discipleship Training. And guys, this is going to be an incredible time. I really, really, really want to encourage you to be there, not for my sake, not for our church staff's sake. We get nothing from this, but for your sake, for your sake. You know that uh, story where there's like a, a guy in a house and the waters come and the floods rise and he gets on top of the house and a boat comes by and the boat says, hey, jump in, I'll save you. No, my God will save me. Okay, well, I digress. Point being is that if you want to get equipped, if you want help, there are a few very practical ways that you can begin to grow and be equipped to do this work. So, guys, that's what I have this morning. This is God's plan for dealing with sin in the church. Not legalistically, like the Pharisees. Not judgmentally or condescendingly. Not even professionally. But by all of us, each of us, bearing one another's burdens with love and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ.